Welcome to the God and Cancel Culture podcast. It's a new podcast that I've done in which I take some of my Strang Report podcasts that deal with my new book by the same name, God and Cancel Culture, which will be out September 7th. Today, I'm doing interviews that I did with Joel Kilpatrick. He's a writer and editor. He actually collaborated with me on the book, but he is an expert in his own right. He's a humorist. He's actually been written about in major uh, national publications. He's written a lot of books of his own. He's quite an interesting guy, and he had has very distinct views on cancel culture. And so I did a couple of podcasts with him. I think you'll enjoy it. This is my podcast. You may have already heard on the Strang Report, but I hope this is attracting a new audience. And then stay tuned toward the end. I come back with another message. Welcome to the Strang Report with Steve Strang on the Charisma Podcast Network. This episode was produced to discuss and address issues within our nation and around the world from a Christian worldview. Welcome back, everyone. And Joel, I'm so glad you took time from a busy schedule, a busy writing schedule to be on my podcast, because I think that there's some issues, especially since the election. And it's just been amazing. Everything that's happened with the cancel culture, big tech. Before we dive into some of these other things, are you giving me your take on what's happening, especially as it affects Christians? Well, I think everybody's reacting differently to the uh, kind of the shock to the system that keeps hitting um, the body, really hitting the world. In the last couple months, last year, if you can believe it, probably a year ago, no one was seeing anyone in public wearing a mask. Everything was totally open. A lot of people didn't know what COVID was and what, how different, you know, what a difference a, a year makes in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. And uh, it's really what Jesus said would happen, right? Everything would come to maturity right alongside each other, the wheat and the weeds. So we are definitely, you know, we're seeing that. What I have noticed is the acceleration, uh, and everybody really notices this, from about January 6th onward of the aggressive uh, shutting down of conservative voices of Christians on social media, on the legacy media, uh, even Google and Apple and, and Amazon, not just deplatforming specific voices, but actually punishing business partners, email services and others that do auxiliary work for Amazon, for example, uh, are getting punished if they support or do business with conservative communication platforms. And it's breathtaking how quickly this has gone and how quickly the, you know, what they call big tech has coalesced around the same goals and the same agenda. So if this is not a wake-up call, you know, I don't know what is. It's impossible just to plug your ears and drown out what's happening today um, to the church. The good news is there's a lot less room in the middle. Uh, you see a, a lot of people... Last year, I wrote about, it was, I think it was in May or June, about how these pressures were acting as a flare that, you, you know, you shoot a flare in the sky and it illuminates the battlefield. And I said, um, COVID and at that time, the race, the racial tensions and uh, even riots 
were a flare that the Lord was using to illuminate um, the battlefield, so to speak. And I wrote back then that Christians were going to be, be coalescing on one side or the other. You would have some on one side who were saying, let's go along with everything the culture says to do, from COVID mandates to uh, saying the right things and uh, being very, you know, kind of conforming to the leftist speech codes. And uh, back then that wasn't happening as much in the church, but now it is. It's coming more to full flower. But I also said, and this was before there was really a lot of movement in the church toward coalescing and unifying in the public square, I said, we're going to see churches and leaders in the Christian world begin to find each other and embolden each other and gain strength and become a voice in the public square for the church of Jesus Christ. And the church was going to change radically in the next months and years. And here we are less than a year later. And man, we are seeing that. If there's any positive development, and there is, it's mainly that so many leaders have shed their old skin, so to speak, of being seeker-friendly or, you know, just trying to be welcoming and and, uh, all that kind of stuff. And there's nothing wrong with that in theory, but the way they were carrying it out was with a lot of compromise. Well, man, I have seen some people that today, they wouldn't recognize who they were a year ago, because back then they were just meek and accommodating. Well, now they are you know, they're warriors for uh, for the Lord and his kingdom and, and for the rights of not just Christians, but all Americans to stand up freely, say what they want without the fear of being canceled, you know? I've been concerned yeah. about this for years. And of course, I'm not the only one. To some extent, this has been going on a long time. I mean, there are examples of where uh, presidents of large companies would be canned because it was discovered that they contributed money to some you know, conservative outfit. I remember when you had Proposition 8, um, when was it, maybe in uh, 2008, that that uh, said that marriage was between a man and a woman, and it actually passed in California. You know, it was a miracle, but it passed. And people that supported it, uh, even I remember some uh, people in the Mormon church who, you know, tend to be very conservative, they supported it. They were canceled, you know, but a lot of people would say, well, you know, it didn't happen to me and I'm not that concerned. And and this has been happening to Christians. We've been marginalized, ridiculed. Our values have not been taught in the school for, you know, several generations now, et cetera, et cetera. But Christians just kind of go along. It doesn't affect me. You know, we still have good services and my family is happy and we go on vacation and we earn a living and you know, it doesn't affect me, but now it's almost at a point where you can't get away with it. And and one of the things that's caused that is COVID because everyone's been affected by that. I mean, you know, you can't go into a store without a mask. A lot of jobs were lost. A lot of companies were shut down. And, you know, as we were talking about COVID and, and what it was a year ago, I was actually in California on leap day, the last day in February, I flew back March 1st. Well, that's just barely a year ago. And when I was in California, I was in Dana Point, which is a little south of you, uh, nobody was talking about COVID. Nobody. You know, we were, we were hearing a little bit about it in the news that there was a new SARS-like virus. But, you know, this has happened several times. I think one was called maybe the swine flu. 
And, uh, you know, people got sick, but it didn't really affect life. And then from March 1st, when I flew home, I think they had a total shutdown by March 15th, which was only two weeks later. And we had a total lockdown. Even here in Florida, we were locked down, although our company never was. We were considered an essential business, believe it or not, partly because we're considered media. And uh, we never did shut down totally, although we did let most of our people work from home, you know, so that they could stay away from anybody who might have the the virus. And at the time, the theory was that if we shut everything down, everyone stays home, the virus won't be spread and kind of go away as viruses tend to do after a while. But boy, that has not happened at all. Instead, it's been politicized. And in, in my opinion, it's given politicians in particular on the left who already want to control our lives. It gave them a new medical reason to control our lives and everything from shutting down churches, putting businesses out of business because you know of the restrictions. And you had uh, something going on out there in Ventura County that I referred to uh, at the beginning of the podcast. And why don't you just remind my listeners a little bit of what happened? And and also, I'm just curious what result happened from you know, the stand that you and some other people took out there in Ventura County, California, which for those who don't know California history, it's just a little bit northwest of Los Angeles, kind of on the way to Santa Barbara. Yeah, Ventura County, we're, we sit adjacent to LA County. We have a much lower population, which is great. A lot of, you know, horses and hillsides. And we're also, we have a history of loving freedom and being a, a conservative area. But I don't know how. I think it's because the the public health agency of our county has swelled to hundreds of millions of dollars a year, mainly based on federal and state grants. Well, when that happens, guess who calls the tune? The state and the feds, because you've hired a bunch of people based on all that grant money. And to renew that grant money and not have to fire people, you have to keep you know, uh, doing what the state tells you. So when the, when the, the lockdown happened, we happened to have a very aggressive public health officer who, by the way, makes over 350000 I think it's to $400,000 a year now. And he's a contracted guy. Well, man, he just cut loose and started talking about crazy stuff like um, putting thermometers on people and tracking them around town and to see where outbreaks happen. This is back in May of 2020. Many even said they wanted to experiment with uh, testing sewage for the virus. Apparently, you can detect it in public sewage to see, trace it back to where it might be. In fact, he just talked about that again a month or two ago. So he's a little, he's a little bit of a quack, but he's in a very powerful situation. And in and a position where you can almost call the shots, you know, we have laws that, well, first of all, what you're saying sounds crazy, but, you know, mm-hmm. it should be approved by a city commission or a county council or something or the governor. But this is putting a lot of authority to affect people's lives in the hands of almost dictatorial bureaucrats. Am I right? Oh, you're totally right. And they're unelected. I don't know if you guys, you know, your listeners have noticed, but the count people like county supervisors, they're not up to the job. When the light shines on them, they scatter like cockroaches and they just uh, they empower these public health officers who are not 
uh, responsible to the voters. This guy's not up for election, you know, and, and the governor out here is especially punitive. He's a vindictive man. And I know people that work with him and they tell me that he's a Rehoboam, not a Solomon. And Rehoboam was the one who was vindictive against the people. He wanted to punish and control them. He was Solomon's son. You can look that up in the Bible. And that's, that's Gavin Newsom's character. So if a city votes against him, he will come after that city, no matter how small. If a county goes against what he is dictating from Sacramento, he will come strongly against that county and try to strip them of funds and, and all this other stuff. So I understand what they were dealing with, but man, this is a call for patriots. This is when heroes are made. You stand up locally, locally like a lot of sheriffs have been doing, and you say, we're not going to enforce those rules coming from Sacramento. We have to have some balance of power, you know. So here's the good thing, Steve. That podcast, I think, ran in early May that, that you and I did. It was actually great on May 5th, if anybody wants to look it up on the Charisma Podcast Network. All the podcasts are there, and people are still listening to it, Joel. Oh, it's, it's very relevant, because Ventura County was an early mover. In fact, that same week um, after the podcast, it, it got on Tucker Carlson and they did like a four or five minute segment on this guy and they showed him. And the, the big thing was that I called for his uh, resignation I, and I called for his firing. Of course, they didn't do it. And at his next press conference, I, I, I said, uh, this guy's going against the Constitution of the Bill of Rights. This guy actually stood up and mocked the Constitution. He said, we're going to keep doing this and we're going to do this and this and this to our citizens. Unless he says there's some people out there who believe in constitutional, you know, whatevers, but we'll get past that. And he made light of it. Um, so he made us really a national disgrace. The good news is he dropped the craziest plans. And if anybody's watching California, the progress of our recall effort, it looks like we're going to get a chance to recall our governor and bring balance back to these relationships. But I, I think all of us can be surprised how quickly public health was weaponized against free citizens, free exercise of religion and speech and get assembly and school. everything just went out the window. And you're seeing people just give up freedoms based on fear or wanting to fit in or fear of losing their jobs. And that's what's shocking to me is how fearful, how susceptible to fear people are, and then how ready they are to trade in their freedoms. Frankly, it reminds me of, um, I read a lot about history, and I'm a historian, that's part of my education, but uh, Germany in the 1930s, and I would highly recommend everybody study Bonhoeffer. I think Bonhoeffer is a prophetic a voice in our generation. He's a gift of God to help us discern and understand what's happening in our day, not so we can go along with it, but we can fight back with it. Steve, can I say something about the way some Christians are responding to the pressure and persecution right now. Please uh, do. That's why we're doing this podcast. So here's how I'm seeing it. The, the greatest cancel culture in the world right now and in the last 40, 50 years is, uh, is China. China is a cancel culture by definition. You know, they control the internet, they control speech, they control visas, uh, and they control the prisons. We all know about the the facial recognition and the video and the social credit scores. This is 1984 come to life. Um, the, the improper reaction I see from a lot of Christians and even Christian leaders right now 
is they're saying, well, it looks like we're entering a season of persecution. We just need to hunker down and let the Lord refine us through the persecution. Now, I understand the suffering aspect of the faith, and I, I think that is, that is a, something that the Lord does. We don't have to go looking for suffering, but he will allow those seasons of pressure. What I don't like is the passivity that it breeds when people say, well, look at the church in China. They, they have really flourished under you know, these decades of persecution and the imprisonment of their leaders and things. That's all well and good, but have you ever considered this? If the church in China is doing so well, why haven't they overthrown the Chinese Communist Party yet? Why aren't they even uh, giving any sort of pushback toward what their government's doing? I, I relate it to the golden rule or the second greatest commandment. Loving your neighbor means not allowing your neighbor to be stripped of their God-given freedoms. It means not allowing the government to freely send your neighbor to prison or to monitor you or to keep you from exercising your religion and your speech, you know. So I don't like the way some Christians are framing the proper response and saying, well, we should just let the Lord refine the church, which is, the church is lukewarm in America. We all know that. But at some point, you got to have George Washington's and Thomas Jefferson's and Ben Franklin's and Thomas Paine's. We got to have a new breed of those. We need some new founding fathers in America. We need some Chinese people to stand up and be founding fathers there, because part of the Christian responsibility is to keep governments from stripping your fellow human citizens from God-given rights. That's the genius of America, is that we have preserved the rights that God gives to every person to live and to speak freely, to train up their children with the beliefs that the parents have and all these other things. And I believe God has honored our country for these 250 years because we have enshrined those protections in law. We've said we are going to protect the freedoms God gave to us. So I don't like the model of, oh, we're just going to be like China and God will send revival during a time of great persecution. That may be, but isn't it also possibly true that God is raising up a new crop of founding fathers for America or in China who will say, no, we're not going to stand quietly by while governments strip people of their God-given dignity and freedoms. Well, that's so well said. And I think you bring up a very important point. But while that is happening, and, you know, it's no secret that many pastors are very, very passive. They, they, they don't want to be criticized. A lot of pastors, frankly, are not really leaders. You know, they go into ministry for other reasons, probably good reasons, such as they have a counseling gift or perhaps a teaching gift, or they just love people. We want pastors, of course, who love people, but they're not real, they don't really have a backbone. And, you know, one example of this is the so-called Johnson Amendment, where the IRS code was changed in 1954 to take a, to strip a church or really any nonprofit organization of their tax-exempt status if they uh, got involved in politics. Now, I'm probably not saying it real precisely, uh, because in 19, since 1954, only one nonprofit has actually lost its nonprofit status. But, you know, it's like something hanging over the head of churches. And 
Pastors, listen, if you run a nonprofit ministry and you lose your nonprofit status, it basically puts you out of business. And so they're, you know, they're very careful. And frankly, a lot of pastors hide behind that. You know, they don't want to get in trouble mm. with the government, blah, 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 blah. And I've seen this mm. when, uh, for example, I supported Mike Huckabee in 2008. You know, he's he's a godly man, uh, you know, a former Baptist preacher. He was governor of Arkansas for 10 years, uh, followed the mess with the Clintons there with Whitewater and everything else. In fact, uh, he was the lieutenant governor. He actually became governor when the governor went to jail because of the Whitewater scandal. Interestingly, it never touched the Clintons, but the governor of Arkansas went to jail. And Huckabee did a great job as governor. He's great with the press. I thought if ever one of our type could get elected is Mike Huckabee. Now, I personally believe, and this is off subject a little bit, but I believe that he would have been a much better candidate than John McCain against Barack Obama. There would have been a clear choice. But Amen. and I I did everything I could in my circle of influence, including raising a whole lot of money for his campaign and everything else. And I ran into apathy on the part of pastors. You know, it's like, well, you know, we didn't, we're not sure. We, you know, we got all of our plans, blah, 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 blah. And Mike Huckabee came in second. But guess what? In American politics, coming in second is no good. And we all know how that kind of played out. He's, you know, he, he's still a, a force in America. He, he's so well respected and he's so articulate. But I just saw that up close and personal. And now it, we're not just trying to elect a, a good Christian. Actually, he, you know, how people attack Donald Trump because he stood for Christian values and, and he was not a Baptist preacher in any way, shape or form. Uh, they would have taken Huckabee apart limb by limb. I just know they would have if he had been elected president. But now we're almost at a crisis, especially with this cancel culture. I don't even think I knew the term until maybe about two years ago when you started hearing people talk about it. They don't, if, you know, if somebody doesn't like you, they'll get on social media, say all kinds of things. They want you to lose your job. Sometimes people do lose their jobs because of embarrassing situations. They just want to get rid of you. They want to fire you from your job and so on and so forth. Maybe you could, def you understand this probably better than I do. Maybe you could define cancel culture for us and, and just explain what's going on. Yeah, it's a cute little term for what's been happening for a long time. Leftists don't want anybody else to challenge their thinking, especially in the public square, because uh, <laughs> because their thinking is so full of holes and it's so um, anti-freedom. They don't want to have to defend it. So instead of arguing with you, they want to shut you up preemptively. I mean, I I've experienced this since high school and college, as soon as you get into politics, you learn really quick that you're supposed to toe the line and there's acceptable and unacceptable things to say. And, you know, according to the progressives, and uh, a lot of that uh, is, is just basic Christian beliefs or conservative beliefs. So they try to define mainstream as, you know, their beliefs and anything outside of it is supposedly... Um, you know, dangerous. So this is just an acceleration of what they've always done. I mean, this this defined the Soviet Union. It defines present day China. 
there's nothing mysterious or new about this. There may be a, a, a you know a little term that they're using now, cancel culture, but this is just totalitarianism, um, you know, under another name. I'm, let me speak to this, Steve, because there's this is how I feel about it. The biggest, uh, how, how do I say it? Let me put it this way: cancel culture is a test of your susceptibility to mammon. Jesus said you cannot serve both God and mammon, typically translated as money, right? Well, there's a, there's a, a, a spirit behind this, this fear of losing your job, of losing your reputation, right? So when the Lord turns up the heat and allows you to be uh, persecuted or for your pocketbook book to take a hit because you want to stand for truth, he's putting you through a test. He's saying, let me see how much you're willing to stand with me. Let me see how much you love me. What are you willing to put up with? And what we're seeing now is the results of that is a lot of people are more motivated. I'm not trying to be mean here, but a lot of Christians are more motivated by mammon in the form of paychecks, retirement benefits, job benefits, security, keeping their house, keeping their kids in the school they want to go to or the university. Christians are wedded to mammon in so many different ways that all that the enemy has to do is put a a little pressure on you and you'll come to heel like a dog on a leash, okay? And that's behind a lot of the cowardice. So in my view, if you haven't given up money, if you haven't had money or opportunity taken from you for your stand for Christ, then you've actually been failing some tests. That's just how I see it. I think the Lord brings us to places in life, each of us, where if we stand where he's standing, we're going to lose something, you know? And it could be a raise or a promotion or whatever it is. Um, and if that hasn't happened to us, I would I would question whether you have been standing consistently with the Lord. Now we're seeing it accelerated, right? So when the threat of so-called cancellation uh, comes against a, a pastor or a normal Christian in the community, and they they back away and they don't stand for freedom or they don't stand for biblical principles or marriage and immorality, um, all it means is it's very, it's just revealing that they are more, they have more allegiance to mammon than they do, um, you know, to God. And I'm not trying to be mean about it, but it is useful to see how people are responding, right? All the way up and down the chain. You talk about pastors hiding behind the Johnson amendment. I remember being in Ethiopia in the nineties reporting and hearing the stories of how Ethiopians under the communist regime uh, would gather in fields out in the wilderness for days and days. They would sleep and eat and sit in this field and listen for eight, nine, ten hours a day to Christian teaching. I got to tell you, they didn't have the Johnson, they, they didn't have, uh, you know, the, the nonprofit protections and benefits that churches have here. Why do we need the benefits of a nonprofit to carry out the gospel effectively? Listen, 
if that's what's standing between you and powerfully preaching the gospel of the kingdom in your community, give up your rights under the government. You know, meet in a park or something, or just act like a normal... I've begun to question, do churches even need the degree of organization that a lot of them have? Because the government can always use that in extreme situations to control the church. So we need to look past the normal structures, Steve, and start picturing a future where we're not going to subject ourselves to the government control, whether it's through the tax protection or whatever it is like that, you know? Well, I think this is so important, and boy, we could talk about this probably for hours and never really cover everything. So I want to have you back for other conversations about this. These podcasts are supposedly pretty short, and this has gone a little bit long, so we probably need to leave it there. But I promised at the beginning of the podcast to talk about your famous father. Now, uh, his name is Bob Kilpatrick, and people may not know his name, but they, if you've been going to church at all, you absolutely know one of his most famous songs, which is, In My Life, Lord, Be Glorified. I mean, that song has gone around the world. There's, you know, there's barely a church that hasn't sung it. Everybody knows the lyrics to it. And of course, he has written many songs and he has a very, he has and has had a very effective music ministry. Um, just as we wrap this up, uh, tell me something about your father or the effect of the song. Maybe I should ask you what it's like to grow up the son of a of a such a well-known songwriter. Man, I love my dad. Uh, that song was given to him when he was in his 20s. He was just a, a Jesus person, you know, Jesus people. He was up there in Northern Cal with Mario Murillo and the, and the whole... Uh, Jesus movement that was sweeping California at that time. And, and then he was radically saved and he just really felt the call to music ministry. And one, one night he was sitting there uh, just with the guitar on his lap, ministering to the Lord. And he asked the Lord a question. He said, you know, I want to write a song that my wife and I can sing before concerts and I don't want to share it with anybody. And wouldn't you know it, the Lord dropped this song in his lap, in full form, in my life, Lord, be glorified. And that song, it it went on to be printed in probably billions of hymnals and recorded more times than we could count. And it just became a, a one of the top, people thought it was a hymn because it has such a classic sound. But for 25, 30 years, uh, the Lord used that song in miraculous ways. And by the way, uh, it also allowed my dad to raise five children and minister every week, sometimes in very small churches that couldn't pay him. So the Lord used the royalties from those songs to raise a family, build a ministry culture, and uh, we are carrying that on, my wife and me and my siblings and our children, and we're just trying to multiply the kingdom. So that's what God can do through one song, just placing it like a seed in a family. So I'm so grateful for my dad. And of course, you're ministering powerfully in a different way, mainly through writing. You've written many books. And perhaps later we can find out a little bit more about your background. We certainly appreciate the relationship we have with you at Charisma Media and have had for years. You've 
written and ghostwritten many books for us over the years, as you have for many publishers. And uh, so thank you for being on my podcast. I found it very interesting. I hope the listeners did. If you listened this long, that means you were interested. And you need to share it with people. And while you're at it, go on iTunes and leave us a good review. It actually helps people find out about the podcast and it's continuing to grow. Very recently, a week or so ago, we passed 8 million downloads on the Strang Report and it's continuing to grow because people like you share it. Thank you. And thank you for listening today to the Strang Report on the Charisma Podcast Network. I'm Stephen Strang. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Strang Report with Steve Strang. To read more from Steve, visit his blog, The Strang Report, on charismamag.com. Again, that's The Strang Report on charismamag.com. This is Stephen Strang, and I'm back in the studio, and I just want to add something to this podcast. First of all, you must have enjoyed it if you're still with me. Second of all, I hope it made you want to read the book. As I said earlier, it will be out September 7th. That's the day after Labor Day. That's the day when Amazon will ship your book if you pre-order it. We will actually have copies a couple of weeks before that so they can have time to go to all the stores. I'll be promoting it in lots and lots of ways. You can find out about it on my own website, stevestrangbooks.com. There is a trailer to the book. There's some sample things that you can read. You can buy autographed copies of all the books that I've written. So just check out my site, stevestrangbooks.com. It's my name, Steve Strang. No E on the end of Strang, and then the word books.com. If you know me, you know I go by both Steve and Stephen. With the book, I go by Stephen, but the website is stevestrangbooks.com. I don't even know. When somebody asks me what what they should call me, sometimes I don't even know what to say. So anyway, I just wanted to... uh, help you remember how to say the name of the website. Thank you for listening to my new podcast, God and Cancel Culture. I believe it's the most important book I've written. God bless you.